these are most definitely uncertain times. Uh, you only need to look at the news and really any news to see that, right? Um, you can pick up uh, just your favorite uh, channel on TV. It uh, doesn't really matter which one it is. It could be Fox News, CNN. You go to BBC. doesn't really matter. Uh, they all have stories on them that fill you with uncertainty and uh, that are somewhat unsettling, right? It's really kind of been good not to watch the news here lately. Um, yeah, the same could be said for, for things that are in print. You know, if you are a reader of something like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, something of that, that nature, or maybe you read on your, uh, your electronic device, whatever, you find the same kind of articles there, the same kind of stories. The, the pages of, of these are just covered with stories about upheaval and uncertainty. I'm, I'm not even going to mention what you might find on the internet because most of it's not even news, right? Uh, but there's just all kinds of this out there right now. The world is uncertain. So we continue to see injustice in the world around us right now from the mistreatment of people based on their ethnicity to the government sanctioned killing of the unborn. We, we see right now that uh, you can hardly turn on the TV or open a newspaper without hearing reports about protests or riots, uh, of calls for the removal of police forces or the killing of individuals who are in the autonomous safe zone in Seattle. We're only now able to begin meeting again due to the spread of COVID-19, Right? There continue to be concerns about whether we have overreacted to that or maybe we've underreacted to it. Will there be a resurgence of COVID-19 here in the coming months? Will the government try to shut down businesses and organizations again? Which just leads us to another uncertainty, right? What will become of our economy? And so how will we be able to recover from what all, already has occurred this year or uh, what, what would we do if they were to shut things down? Would businesses even be able to reopen? So what in the world is going on? It all seems so out of control. I don't know if you feel that. I feel that. Well, Michael has pointed us out in several places in the last uh, several weeks, uh, or I should say several places from the book of Matthew, um, what God is, has to say about times like these. And so I want us to look this morning at another passage of Scripture that helps us with these uncertain times. So if you wouldn't mind flipping open in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. This morning we'll be reading the, the full chapter, but we'll be reading it in segments. And so we just want to communicate kind of the story as it unfolds or the vision. And for that reason, we're going to start this morning by only reading the first segment of that chapter. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. And uh, if you have found that, if you would stand with me, if you're able and willing, in the honor of God and the reading of his word. We're going to start off by reading just the first four verses of chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 5, this is the word of the Lord. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in uncertain times like these, you don't leave us adrift trying to, to, deter, uh, to determine or uh, to figure out how to do things. For Father, you are a good father. You are a loving God who doesn't leave us to our own devices, but you have given us direction. You have spoken to us and you have told us what is to be done and how to live. And so, Father, in these difficult times, in these times of uncertainty and unrest, Lord, may we look to you and your word and may we find certainty in you. Lord, may we have confidence in you. May we have confidence in your word and what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be and who you have made us through your son, Jesus Christ. And may you be praised. And may you be worshipped this morning, Father. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, many of us, if, if you're like me, you, you are often intimidated by the book of Revelation. Um, we read the imagery there, or we, we hear the vast numbers of interpretations that people have about the book of Revelation. And uh, we just we feel underqualified to really understand the book. And, and I think for many of us, that, that often leads to us not really reading it, or at least not reading it in, as a whole, right? We might kind of get interested in, hey, what's that, that deal about the locusts that have the, the crazy look to them? And we might flip over there and read that, and man, that's crazy. Um, but, but oftentimes, we're not just sitting down and just reading the book as a book altogether. And I think that's often because we're, we're just intimidated by it. So instead, we, we just kind of, we leave it to the specialist. You know, those guys out there that have the charts and do all of these things and, and they've got it figured out and we'll let them figure it out and they can just tell me. Well, I, I would just say that that's really unfortunate because the book is intended to edify and strengthen the church. And so it was written for us to be built up with. And so when we're faced with difficulties and uncertainties, the churches often turn to the book of Revelation if you look through history. Uh, and there they found comfort and there they found uh, a way of being edified. And so for you see that the basic message of the book of Revelation is really quite clear. It's, it's not hard, right? God wins in the end. Uh, there, we've summed it up, right? The book of Revelation, God wins in the end. We could be more specific about it and that's a little too... Redneck, I don't know, but but really, it's that's what it's about, right? God wins in the end, or more appropriately, God has been, is, and will be in control of all things from eternity past to eternity future. And so, just as Garland was saying, our Lord is sovereign and in control of all things, and we can find comfort in that. And so, there's there's nothing outside the realm of His control, His power and authority. Well, they're absolute. And in uncertain times, we can know that God is in control. You know, as, as one writer has said, John's vision, speaking of the book of Revelation, were directed by a desire not to mystify either the Christians or the imperial authorities, but to promote spiritual insight. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, we ought not look at it and be, man, I'm so confused. This is just kind of mystical to me. Rather, John is giving us spiritual insight, or the Lord is giving us spiritual insight through John. 
So let's not look at it as if it's something to be decoded and, and, and if we only had the key, maybe we'd finally figure it out. But instead, let's look and see what God has to say and be encouraged and edified by it. And so when we look here in the book of, of Revelation, uh, it starts off somewhat easy, right? It starts off with the letters to the churches and, and he's writing and saying uh, to this church, here are some things that are good, here are some things that are bad, and, and maybe those things aren't always there in all of, uh, all of those churches. Uh, but then it gets to chapter 4, and in chapter 4 we have a picture of the throne room. We have this, this glorious picture of God the Father on the throne, and, and what is happening around him, right, with the, the four living creatures and the elders that are around him. And then we come to chapter 5, where we're at right now. And in chapter 5, John is in the throne room, and, and as the worship of God has been going on there, he is there, and something of very great importance is taking place. And so we get this special look into what is happening in the throne room of God through the revelation to see what's going on. And so here at the right hand of him who is seated on the throne... I'm sorry, lost my spot. So let's go back for a second. Okay, I needed a visual. This is just the wall hanging from China from my office, but hey, it's a scroll, okay? So when we look here at chapter five, and I saw, he says, when I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so the, the, the vision starts off with John. He's there in the throne room and he sees God, the father seated on the throne and in his hand, in his right hand, he has a scroll and on that scroll written on the inside and on the outside is something. We don't know what that's okay. Something's written on it. And it's sealed up. And so as, as John's sitting here and, and he's seeing this vision of, of God who's uh, in, in all of his glory worshipped there on the throne. He sees the scroll in his hand. And he goes on. And in, in there we, we see that the, the scroll has seven seals. And there's, there's all of these things. And we can get lost in the detail, right? And this is what happens to us in the book of Revelation. What's, what's on the scroll? What, what are the seals? What are the bowls? What are the trumpets? How do they interrelate to one another? You know, are, they, are they inside one another? Are they separate from each other? We get caught up in those details. And those are not unimportant details. But let's, let's just take a look this morning at the big picture in chapter 5. God's on the throne. He has a scroll in his hand. And it's a scroll that has something important written upon it. Most likely a scroll connected to the scroll of Daniel chapter 12. Where in Daniel we see, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall increase. So we don't know what's on the scroll. And the, 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 the cry goes out, right, as we look here, a strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? No one moves. Just imagine, I mean, we're just here in the sanctuary at First Baptist Church, Guyman, and and for, for somebody to say, I need somebody to come and open this. Who can open it? And nobody moves. Well, suddenly we're at a dilemma here, right? We're, we can't move on until somebody's opened it. Who will open it? No one. 
Now you move that to the heavenly throne room with the creator of the universe in all of his infinite glory being worshipped on the throne who has a scroll and a strong angel stands up and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one moves and there's silence. And maybe again the cry goes out, we don't really know. And still, no one comes forward. No one can open the scroll. No one in heaven, no one on earth, and no one under the earth. And so John begins to weep. John's weeping bitterly, I would say, over the fact that the scroll cannot be opened. Now, if indeed the scroll is tied to the scroll in Daniel chapter 12, then it probably has something to do with um, the revelation of God's plan and the carrying out of God's plan. And so if we want to know what God's going to do and we want to see what God is going to have carried out, well, then the scroll must be opened. And so God's plan seems to be thwarted, if you will. His plan seems to be not going forth. Who can carry it out if the scroll's not opened? And so John weeps bitterly. And as he does so, I, I just hope you, you feel the, the brokenness that he has there as, as he looks and he sees God's plans unrevealed, as God's plans unfulfilled, and, and relates just a little bit to maybe where we're at right now, Right? Like, it just seems like God's plans aren't really being fulfilled. It just seems like things aren't going the way I want them to go, right? We think about Habakkuk there. The plan of God seems to be thwarted. Chaos seems to reign. But then we can just stop for a minute because the chapter goes on, right? So in chapter 5, verse 4, John's weeping. But then we look at verse 5. In verse 5, 6, and 7, we read this. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God from the right hand of him uh, set out into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And so we, we start off with this picture of the throne and the scroll, but then we get to move on to the next picture, and the next picture is that of the worthy one. So John weeps because nobody can open the scroll. The, the plan of God seems to be uh, uh, thwarted, seems to not go forward. And yet one of the elders reaches over, and he's, he, he, he awakens John, if you will, from his grief. And he says, wait, there's hope. So in the midst of despair, John's really not aware of what's happened. Like the, the, the lamb has come into the throne room and, and maybe John's too carried away in his weeping or his mourning. We, we don't really know, but the, the elder gets his attention and in his grief, he points out to him, uh, wait, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has come. These are two references to two very strong messianic passages of hope in the Old Testament, which 
a, a Jew would have quickly heard and sought the Messiah. Here we go. And so you think of Genesis 49 verses 8 and 9 is where we talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is when Jacob is blessing his children and he gets to the blessing for Judah and he says this. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stoops down. He crouches as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And so for years, people have understood this to be the coming Messiah from the tribe of Judah. And then also Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1, and and we'll skip over to verse 10, where it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." And so from these two passages, we see uh, this, this idea that John is awoken to the Messiah is here. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David or the, the root or shoot from Jesse. And, and notice on that second one there that the worthy one is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's the root of Jesse. And so he's not a branch off of the tree of David somewhere later on, but he's actually the foundation of David's house. What an incredible picture this is. And so he's, he looks and, and you can just imagine he's there and he's weeping uh, in the floor or on the ground, wherever he might be. And, and somebody points out, no, brother, wait, listen here. The Messiah is here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. And so you can just see John picking himself up and, and writing himself and maybe he's wiping his eyes on his sleeve, trying to get a clear sight. And he looks up and what does he behold? He beholds the Lion of Judah and the Root of David who has come, who has come and who has conquered, who can open the scroll, who can break the seals, but he looks like a lamb. Do you feel the confusion that John would have had? The Lion of the tribe of Judah, yes. The Root of Jesse, the Root of David, yes. A slaughtered lamb? Really? There between the throne and the four living creatures, standing among the elders, he sees a lamb, not a lion. A lamb that's standing as if it's been slain. Where's the lion? Where's the great messianic hope? Where's the root of David at? We see here in the Revelation that John sees another image connected to the lion and the root of David, one that is not often looked to for messianic hope, and it's that of the lamb. And we're familiar with it, right? In, in, in our day, we think about this often as Jesus as the Lamb of God. And yet, this harkens back to Exodus chapter 12, right? In the Passover lamb, when the lambs were slaughtered and the blood of the lambs were placed on the, the doorpost and the lentil so that the, uh, the, the, uh, the angel of death would pass over the homes of the Israelites and the firstborn would be saved. And so it's a connection to that in Exodus chapter 12, but it's not only a connection to that. Uh, it's definitely a connection to the Passover lamb, but also a connection to the, the lamb of God in the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 verse 7. I mean, think about this. As we think about the suffering servant passages in chapter, uh, verse 7, chapter 53 verse 7, he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that was led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, 
So he opened not his mouth. And so as you can feel John's confusion here, he's shaken from his grief. He's looking only to see a lamb. He's got to be asking himself, what, what am I seeing? And we might ask ourselves, what exactly is he seeing? Right? You remember a couple of months ago, um, we talked about the ascension and the session of Christ. You remember we talked about how that was a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says there that the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, Jesus has ascended to the Father. He, he moves to take his place at the Father's right hand. And when he does so, he picks up the scroll from his Father's right hand. And he opens it. And he breaks the seals. And he shows that he alone is worthy to open it, that he alone is worthy to implement it. He alone is worthy to carry out that which God has commanded. And so there's this glorious truth that that the scroll that no one in heaven could open, that no one on earth could open, that no one under the earth could open, the Lord Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, could open. And he opens it. And we see that through the rest of the book of Revelation. God's plans are revealed to his people. And God's plans are carried out by Christ. And so uh, in the Old Testament, Danny Aiken says this. I think this is just a great way to think about the, the pictures here. In the Old Testament, we see the lamb on an altar and his blood on the Passover door. In the Gospels, we see the lamb on the cross. And in the Revelation, we see the lamb on the throne. What a glorious truth that is. In an uncertain time that the Lamb is on the throne, able to carry out the will of God. And so here, John must think back to the testimony of John the Baptist that he probably wrote down several years before this, right? As John the Baptist says in John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward them and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You just imagine that moment when John, it, the light bulb comes on in the revelation. It's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. He's the one worthy to open the seal, uh, to, to open the scroll and break the seals. The world sees Christ, the, the worthy one, and his death on a cross as kind of a foolish thing, doesn't it? But we see in it the power of God unto salvation. I mean, we, we think, uh, need only think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, and I won't read all of it, but, but 18 through 24 there, where he, he talks about to the, uh, for the world, the cross is folly. Uh, and then on down in 23, but he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but that those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so here, the very thing that the world sees as folly is the very thing that makes the lamb worthy to receive worship, that makes the lamb worthy to open this, the, the scroll. So do you, you feel like things are out of control today? Are you appalled by the injustice that continues in our day? Do you cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Or do you cry out with Habakkuk, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear? I mean, know today that there is no one worthy to reveal and implement the plan of God except Jesus. 
Know today that this Jesus, this worthy one, sits on the throne as the Lion of Judah, as the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, is worthy of worship. In fact, the next three sections of chapter 5 are passages about worship, worship, and worship, right? So if you're breaking down this into the five sections like I did just for convenience, we have the throne and the scroll, right? And then we have the worthy one. And then we have worship, worship, worship. Because he alone is worthy of worship, worship, worship. So let's just look at this this third section here in verses uh, 8 through 10, where it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so as, as the, the lamb comes in and the lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the father, and really the lamb sits down on the throne with the father. It's really interesting. The, the language in Revelation always talks about the father and son on the throne together, at least from chapter 5 on, and, and it uses the singular idea of, the son and the father singular on the throne. Uh, in just this picture there of that's what's going on. The, the elders, I'm sorry, the, the, the living creatures and the elders around the throne can't help but praise God for what's going on, or more specifically, praise the lamb for what he's done. And so um, if you don't hear anything else I've got to say this morning, uh, please just remember this. The, So much of the point of chapter 5 is simply that the Lamb alone is found worthy of opening the scroll and thus is worthy of worship. That's what chapter 5 is about. It's about the fact that in in uncertain times when things seem uh, to be uh, in upheaval, we, we don't need to worry because the Lamb's on the throne. The Lamb can open the scroll. The Lamb is worthy of worship. And so those things can drive us in, in, in our days as we face difficult times. We have these certainties that Jesus is in control and that he is worthy of worship. So when we meet together on Sunday mornings, we don't have to come in here and kind of work up some time and say, okay, if God just do two or three more songs, maybe I'd be ready to worship. We come in here and the songs we sing are the natural outflow of the wonderful truth of who God is and what he's done. And so it's, it's not working us up to hear the sermon it's, it's the, the outflow of, of praise to God and praise to Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And that's what's happening here is the living creatures and the elders around the throne, they see Jesus, they see the lamb, and they can't help but worship because of who he is and what he's done. That ought to drive us in uncertain times to worship him. Our times meeting together when the world feels rocky ought to be, ought to be a, a bedrock founded in Jesus. Not because we've got it all figured out, but because Jesus is in control. Because of who he is and what he does. And so the, 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 the four living creatures, the, the elders, they, they worship here. Um, and so they, they worship. Uh, I didn't look down at my notes, now I'm lost. Um, they, they, they worship him uh, because he's worthy to break the seal. Because he is um, slaughtered. 
because he is redeeming for God a people with his blood. They worship him because he's, he's worthy, because he ransoms people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. They don't all look like us. Praise God. Hey, think about this. this. This is so very pertinent right now. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are African-American. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are African or Asian, European, around the world that face difficulties and struggles and, and see injustice and things of those matters, and we ought to be concerned. We ought to be concerned for our brothers and sisters because God is saving for himself a people out of all of us. He's not, he's not specifically and specially oriented on Americans. He likes people from Brazil, you know? He loves people from China. He loves people from Cote d'Ivoire. And so what a glorious truth that he ought to be worshipped because he is calling to himself a people from all over. The, the language of every tribe, language, people, and nation in the book of Revelation is not coming from one verse. I, I hope you've realized this. It comes from Revelation 5, 9. It comes from Revelation 7, 9. It comes from Revelation 10, 11. It comes from Revelation 11, 9. It comes from Revelation, I'm going to get my tongue tied here, 13, 7. Revelation 14, 6. Or how about Revelation 17, 15? This is a common theme through the work of the, the word of God about the work of God and redeeming for himself a people from all nations. God be praised. And so when we think about worshiping him and we see that he's in control of all things, we ought to be thinking that he ought to be praised uh, for, for one reason in that he is saving for himself a people from all nations. And so there's, there's many others there, uh, and, and we don't have time to, to spend on all of these. But I want to quickly look at these next two sections of worship. So in verses 11 and 12, we read this. And so the, the, just, again, vision, envision with me. You've got the four living creatures and the elders. They're around the throne, and uh, the one who sits on the throne and the lamb are now on the throne, and they're worshiping the lamb specifically. And, and it just, it can't stay there, right? It's, it's just, it's more than those guys can do. And so when we look in, and we look in, uh, in verse 11 here, then I look and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. The, the worth and the worthiness of the Lamb is such that the four creatures and the elders can't suffice to say it all. So the angels have to kick in and like, we've got to say it too, because the, the Lamb is so very worthy. And so the angels break out in worship. I mean, this would just be incredible to, to, to be there, right? I mean, just think about, man, John, what a cool experience. Because not just that you're in the throne room of God, but you're in the throne room of God seeing the worth of the lamb in such a way that it just spreads out from the four living creatures to the elders, to the angels, and people can't but help but worship and praise him. Now, I'll just ask you real quick, is that what you feel like on Sunday morning when you come? I mean, to be honest, I mean, we're all human, right? I don't always feel that way, right? And, and sometimes I need to look at the reality that, that is beyond what I see physically to see God for who he is, to praise Jesus for what he's done. And so passages like this are so good because here the worship 
just continues, and the worth of the lamb is, is, is made much of. And, and you could go into the fact that there's, there's seven things here and kind of this perfect uh, worth of the lamb as, as they talk about these seven different things, and, and we just don't have time to look at those this morning. But I would just note that power, wealth, wisdom, and might are not something we give to the lamb. I can't give him power. He, he has power given to him by the Father. I can't give him might. That comes from the Father. But I can give him honor, and I can give him glory. And I can give him blessing or, or speaking good words of him, if you will, uh, about him. And so this is, this is what the angels can't help but do. Well, we gotta, we gotta worship because this is who he is. And then it goes on in, in, uh, uh, the, the last section here in verses 13 and 14 where it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the guys in the middle just have to start all over again, right? In 14. And so the, the, the four living creatures say, amen and amen, you know, uh, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And you just see radiating out from the throne of God, the worth of his worship. And so the lamb is worthy to be worshiped. The lamb is worthy to be worshipped. And then here in this last section, this last three that we, uh, two verses we just read, note that now all of creation's involved. Everything that's in heaven, everything that's on the earth, everything that's under the earth, all worshipping. Who are they worshipping? The one who sits on the throne and the lamb. I think this is interesting because the first two were specifically the worship of the lamb. But here in the third one, the lamb and the father are worshipped together. And I think this ties what's going on in chapter 4 in the worship of the Father with what's going on in chapter 5 with the worship of the Son. In that we have this very high Christology in the book of Revelation that says Christ is in fact God. And you cannot get away from that in chapter 5. Because God, who alone is worthy to be worshipped, is sitting there in the throne room while the Lamb is worshipped. But the Lamb's worship doesn't stop there. It goes and it goes and it's like we got to worship God. The, the Father and the Son here together, we worship them together because He is worthy. He deserves blessing and honor, glory and might forever. And so I really am out of time. Uh, but I would encourage you to, to think about the, the Christology of the book of Revelation as you think about He is worthy of worship. Some other interesting notes from the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it starts off in chapter 1, and it talks about the Alpha and the Omega. And it's talking about the Father in 1 verse 8. But then note in 1 verse 17 that it talks about the first and the last. But the first and the last is the Son. And then look at Revelation 21 6, where again, speaking of the Father, he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But then later on in Revelation 22 13, the Son is called the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Son is worthy of worship. He is God. And so as we see here in chapter 5, that the Father's on the throne, the Lamb comes and seated on the throne and has the authority to open the scroll and to break the seals and to read the scroll and to implement what is there on it. It's all because he is in fact God. 
And so when we see uncertainty and we face uncertain times, we can know that God is on the throne. And not only God the Father, but God the Son who relates to us in a very unique way, right? Who knows what we've experienced, who knows what we've faced, and and they're both worthy of worship. And so in our uncertainty, let us worship the Lamb. Let us worship the Father. Let us know that there is certainty to be found in Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us uh, just to try to figure things out, but that you tell us. And Lord, you even, you even reveal to John in, in the Revelation uh, things that, that have happened, things that will happen. Lord, to give us assurance and certainty and help in difficult times. And Lord, I, I don't know that the situations we face today are any worse than, than our brothers and sisters have faced in time past. But Lord, we can be as assured and, and as edified and built up by this passage as they were. So God, we have confidence in you, that you are in control, that your plan will go forth and that the, the, the Lord Jesus will carry that out. That we have a mediator that sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he is the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, the root of David. And he has redeemed for himself a people. And if we are in him, we are with you for all eternity. Father, this morning I pray that as we look at uncertain times, if somebody doesn't know Christ as their Savior and Lord, Father, that they would explore what that means. They would talk to a friend who knows the gospel. They would speak to a Christian friend or brother. They would talk to Jeremy or Michael or I, uh, that they would know what it means to place their faith and trust in Christ alone, the lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of their sins so that they might be redeemed and made right before God and be with him for all eternity. And Father, may you be praised for who you are and what you've done. We love you and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.